0: All right, everybody, I see it's 10 o'clock, so let's get rolling. We want to be fair for our wonderful folks online who are joining us, so we we'll always try and start on time for our online people. So welcome, my friends, and we are starting a new Bible study today. Woo-hoo! Exciting, we get into the book of Galatians today, uh, one of St. Paul's epistles. Uh, we'll learn as we kind of, today's the introduction to the book, we'll learn that this could possibly be the first of all of Paul's letters. This might be the earliest of all of the epistles written. Uh, so we'll talk about this today, what it is, kind of introduce who it was written for, uh, what was going on at the time, the theme. We'll kind of get set the basis for the rest of our Galatians study time together today. So I'm thankful I get to lead off as we start off this great Galatians study. Uh, so... Those of you who have been with me, you know what I always say, if we're going to study the Word of God, we better be prayed up and ready for it. So let's bow our heads, shall we? Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, here we are. We're getting prayed up and ready for your Word. Uh, We pray that you would be with us again as we open up the pages of the Scriptures. Uh, We know that as we open up this book, we're not just opening up any old book. But we are opening up your word, God. We know that as we read these words in the Bible, that you yourself are speaking to us, your lips to our ear through the words of the Bible. So what a gift and what a joy and what a privilege it is to be able to study this book of Galatians. Uh, Even though the book is 2,000 years old, it's still so relevant for us today. The same struggles that those folks had 2,000 years ago are the same struggles that people are having today. And so I think we're going to see that it's a very uh, real book that helps us understand who you are and how we relate to you and how you work in our lives. So As we look at this great book of St. Paul, we ask that you would bless us and that our words would be your words and that you would use it to grow us and prepare us for life of service in the kingdom. So be with us as we study, learn, and grow together in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, friends, uh, you can, if you've already looked at the handout, and those of you who are online, you can download that, um, that handout online. It's available for you there on our website. Uh, as you look at the outline, it's a little different than my usual kind of pick apart a verse at a time. You know, we'll do that as we get into the study. But today's just introduction. So what I'm going to want to do with you today is we're going to read a little chunk of the book of Acts. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about, you know, Acts is the history book of the New Testament church, right? And in the history book called Acts, there's a, a, a four missionary journeys that St. Paul takes. Four times he goes out with others, and he just does this big trip through the areas, and he plants churches, and he does miracles, and he raises up leaders, and he builds the church. And the history book of Acts tells us about these journeys, and his very first missionary journey is in Acts chapter 13. And on that very first missionary journey, he goes to an area called Galatia. Right? It's a province of Rome. You know, Rome, the, the, uh, Rome divided up their area into these provinces. And one of the provinces was Galatia. And that's why this book that we're reading is called Galatians. Ah! Right? So it's a letter that St. Paul wrote to the churches in the province of Galatia. And we're going to see in this missionary journey... He stops at Antioch and Pisidium and Iconium and Lystra and Derbe. These are all churches in the province of Galatia that he stops and plants churches. So today we're going to spend some time looking a little bit at the book of Acts chapter 13 because the background of Galatians, it begins with Paul's uh, sharing the gospel with them in the first place. And so we'll get to hear some of the cool stories and some of the things that happened as Paul founded the church and shared the good news there, right? And then here's the fun part. Then the rest of the time when we're going through the book, you're going to go, now I know why Paul said this. Now I understand why this was so important to Paul. Now I know about those relationships that he was Building with them, and why they're so important to him, because we've kind of looked at the background of that. So we'll look at Acts 13 as we talk about that, is the introduction of how Paul started the church in Galatia, and then we'll do some just sort of um, uh, overview, an introduction to the book. I've just got some paragraphs and things that I wrote that we'll just read one at a time and talk about, and maybe you'll have some questions or some thoughts, just to have some fun in a discussion sort of a thing. And then we're going to end with a little filling out the outline of the six chapters of the book of Galatians that we'll build on the rest of our time. Sound good, everybody? All right. So take a look at your sheets Uh, as we start off the very first page. uh, You can see I've got this map here for you. And uh, while we're talking about this map, you might want to open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 13, because this is where we're going to see these cities are spoken about and how the ministry happened. All right, so if you want to look at your map, first of all, I want you to look to the right side, the east side there, where you find the city of Antioch. Do you see that on your map right there? Antioch was St. Paul's home base, that's what we always call it. So for all of his missionary journeys, he would begin and end in Antioch. The Christian church there and the believers there uh, were just fabulous about, about supporting St. Paul in his ministry and sending him out to, to do ministry. So he would start in Antioch as they would send him. He would come back to Antioch and he would share the good news of the things that God had done. And they would again resource him and empower him and bring new leaders along with him so he could go out and do it all over again, take another missionary journey. So it starts there in Antioch, and you can see if you want to just follow the red arrow down to the south, right, we're going to hear how he goes to the island of Crete. Do you see it there? He stops at two cities in Acts 13, Salomas and Paphos, and then he sails up to the north to Perga. Do you see that there, right? And then he goes up to Antioch, Iconium, Lystra and Derby, and then he retraces his step back from Derby to Lystra, to Iconium, to Antioch, to Perga, and then he sails back to Antioch. I am very confused. About? Two Antioch. There's more than two. Uh, by the way, this Antioch is called Antioch Pisidium, right? So there's just different Antiochs, just like there's all kinds of different same cities in America today. Yeah, a lot of Springfields and stuff. So there were a lot of Antiochs in those days too, okay? And now take a look the dates for this missionary journey. Do you see it's 48 to 49 A.D. When do we say Jesus was crucified? Right around 33 A.D., okay, somewhere around there. So we're talking, you know, just like 15 years after Jesus was crucified, resurrected, Uh, as St. Paul now goes out to share the good news, not long after the the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. All right? So that's the map that this first missionary journey has as St. Paul goes out to Galatia. Now, let's talk about it in Acts chapter 13. If you have your Bibles open there. You see in Acts 13, it says... In the church at Antioch, ha-ha, you know where that is now, don't you? Right there on your map, you know where Antioch is. Uh, There were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, who had brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, Saul. Who is Saul, by the way? Saul is Paul. We know this, right? This is the same person. His name was Saul before he met the Lord, uh, and his name was then changed to Paul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. So I want to just stop here. Isn't this kind of cool, the church in Antioch? Uh, What were they doing when the Holy Spirit came and blessed them and used them and sent them? Were they having a potluck? No, nope, no, nope, no, nope, no, nope. maybe later. But now what were they doing? It says they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. So while they were celebrating God's grace and goodness and worshiping and fasting, the Holy Spirit reveals his plan to send Saul and Barnabas on this missionary journey. And so they lay hands on them. What does that mean? It means that they gave them their blessing. You know, they said, uh, you are going in our place, And so as Paul and Barnabas go, they're not going alone. They're going with the blessing of those who've laid hands on them. Have you ever been with us here at faith when we've sent out our missionaries? And from time to time, we'll gather people around the missionaries and we'll all lay our hands on them and we'll pray for them and we'll send them. When we do that, what are we saying? We're saying you're not going alone. We're saying we're going with you. We're We're You are going in our place, speaking for us. We're supporting, encouraging, loving, praying for you as you go. And that's, where do we get that idea from? Boom, right here, that beautiful church in Antioch. Isn't that cool? All right, so they sent them off. So what happens, verse 4? The two of them went on their way by the Holy Spirit. Again, those of you who study with me, you know when we keep hearing phrases or words again and again, what does that mean? It means pay attention. There's something important. How many times have we heard Holy Spirit already? Many. What's the point here? (laughs) That they're not doing this on their own. God the Holy Spirit is at work taking the good news gospel and bringing it from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. So the Holy Spirit is with them. And um, it says they, they went on their way by the Holy Spirit down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. Oh, we know where Cyprus is. That's on our map, isn't it? Right? That's the island. When they arrived at Salamis, they uh, proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. Now, again, if if you know or if you have a Bible note, you're going, John? There's like a million Johns. Which John is this? This, by the way, is John Mark, is how he's known. This is the same John Mark who most likely wrote the Gospel of Mark. And, you know, this Gentile Mark learned about the faith from Paul in Antioch and then goes with Paul on the first missionary journey, for a little bit anyway. So if you're ever wondering where Mark got all the good news, it came from knowing Paul and being a part of that missionary journey, right? So John is with Barnabas and Saul, John Mark, verse 6. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and a false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, which means he was a Roman, right? A, a Roman official, was an intelligent man. And he sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, and here's the first time we hear this, who was also called Paul. Right, that's a first in the book of Acts. Filled with the Holy Spirit, oh, again, the Holy Spirit, right? Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus and said, you are a child of the devil, an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind, and for a time you will be unable to see the light of the sun. I find this crazy ironic. Paul's first miracle. And, and what is it? The same thing that happened to him on the road to Damascus. You know, he, how did he see the light? How did he come to know the Lord? How did he shed his old thoughts in his old ways? It was through this blindness that the Holy Spirit worked to bring Paul to faith. So he pulls the same trick on the sorcerer, right? is crazy ironic, right? Immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul, this Roman official, saw what had happened, he believed. For he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Can you see the Holy Spirit at work? Can you see the Holy Spirit working through St. Paul to ready, gather believers, to build and grow the church? He's working through a Roman official. Hmm. From there, he moves on. Uh, Verse 13. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia. Oh, you know where that is. That's right there on your map, isn't it? Right? He sailed from Perga to Pamphylia, where John, who John? John Mark, left them to return to Jerusalem. This turns out to be a big deal that is spoken about more later in the Gospel of Mark, or in the Gospel, in the Book of Acts. Uh, But Mark now leaves them and goes back to Jerusalem. A lot of people think he was homesick. We'll find out more later. 14. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. Ha ha! Now we know Pisidian Antioch, and you know where that is. It's on your map. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue. Have you seen a pattern there, too? When Paul went to a new city, what did he always do first? He went to the synagogue. He does it again here. And he sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the synagogue rulers sent word to them, saying, "Brothers." If you have a message of incursion for the people, please speak. Those poor dudes had no idea what they were saying. <laughs> they had no idea what they were inviting, were they? Right? Standing up, St. Paul motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. Now, I'm not going to read this whole sermon that he gives. It goes here from verse 17 uh, all the way to verse 47. But right, what, what I want you to see is if there's, here's, here's the point. If you just want to look at verse 32 of Acts 13, he says, We tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us their children by raising up Jesus. Right there is Paul's entire strategy for sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus with the, with the Jewish people. What does he do? He says, "Everybody, listen, the promises that were made to our fathers, that one day a Messiah would come, the promises that we're waiting and hoping for our whole lives has come true in the one named Jesus. See that was his strategy, how we had always build on the Old Testament and how Christ Jesus fulfilled the promises of the Old Testament. He would start there, and then he would go on to explain." how it is that Jesus was the Messiah, what he did. And that's the rest of this, of this sermon. In verse, uh, if you look at verse um, 33, what does he do? He quotes Old Testament scripture. Verse 34, what does he do? He quotes Old Testament scripture. Verse 35, what does he do? He quotes Old Testament scripture. So he uses their own scriptures, the Old Testament, to prove that Jesus is the Christ. And what's the linchpin of this? Look at verse 35. He quotes Psalm 16 here and says that God will not let the Messiah see decay. That he would not die and stay dead. And then look what he says in verse 36. For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. So you see, Paul points to the, the, the Messiah's authentication of who he is and what he came to do, that he was God in the flesh through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And there is the whole strategy of St. Paul in ministering to the Jewish people. Right. So he lays all of this off in um, verse 48. Uh, He lays out this beautiful sermon. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. When the Gentiles heard this, what about the Jews? They rejected it. And and why does St. Paul say when he would share this message that the Jews would reject Jesus who died and rose again? He says because to the Jewish people, the cross was a stumbling block. They said, he said they couldn't get across as Messiah who would be crucified. For the Jewish people, that was just so radical. It was so unthinkable. It was so impossible that for them, St. Paul calls it this stumbling block that they couldn't get over to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. However, the Gentiles received this word with great joy the good news of salvation and the forgiveness of their sins. So when they heard it, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Now look at verse 49. It's a beautiful verse. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. Again, this is a typical pattern. That's going to be repeated over and over and over again. Verse 51, so they shook the dust from their feet in protest against them and went on to Iconium. Ah, Iconium. You know where that is. That's on your map. They moved from Antioch to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy, even though they just got kicked out of town. They were filled with joy uh, with the Holy Spirit. Now verse 14. Or chapter 14. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went, as usual, into the Jewish synagogue, and there they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. But the Jews who refused to believe <laughs> stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. So there was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and stone them. But when they found out about it and fled, but when they found out, they fled to the Lyconium cities of Lystra and Derby. Oh, you know where that is. It's on your map. (laughs) And to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the good news. So now they are in Lystra and Derby. In Lystra, there sat a man crippled in his feet who was lame from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. And Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk and did the chicken dance. <laughs> when the crowd saw that Paul, what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas, they called Zeus, And Paul, they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Now, the priest of Zeus, right? Think of this. The Gentile priest who was in charge of worshiping Zeus. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates, because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We, too, are only men, humans like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony, He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. So don't miss what's going on here. Their miracles were so powerful that the people started calling them gods, Zeus and Hermes. And it was so believable that even the priest of the temple of Zeus brought bulls in order to sacrifice them to Paul and Barnabas. Isn't that crazy? Right? The the whole city was in an uproar uh, about what was going on at that time. So, uh, verse 19, some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. Remember the trouble they got in there? Right? And they won the crowd over. And they stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. He was stoned so badly, they thought they had killed him. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. Now it doesn't say this, but implied here is that the apostles, uh, the, the disciples gathered around and they prayed, and that he had some healing that was going on there. Otherwise, there's no way he would have ever been able to function. I mean, if you get stoned so badly that think you're dead, there's multiple broken bones. There's multiple concussions. There's a great volume of blood loss. You know, you don't just get up from that and look at the like the next verse. The next day he and Barnabas left for Derby. You know, you just don't get up and go, man, that's psych. (laughs) I'm okay. Just kidding, you know. There had to be some healing there. And that I think implied in this verse. The disciples gathered around him. They prayed, they prayed, they laid on hands, and God worked through them to bring healing. So, what what does Saul say? Man, that was awful. I'm never going through that again. I'm done with this missionary stuff. Is that what he says? Nope. Next day, he gets up, and we're going to Derby. Derby? Oh, you know where Derby is. That's on your map. So, verse 21, they preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Why would they go back there when the people just stoned him? And what do you think those people thought when Paul came strolling back into town? The one who was all busted up and broken and bloody and they thought he was dead shows up and goes, ta-da! What do you think they thought about that? Right? Amazing. So they returned there. And also, amazing that Paul would go, right back to the place. This guy's not afraid of anything if he's empowered by the Holy Spirit and he's got gospel good news to share. Don't care who you are, what you've done to me, you're going to hear about Jesus. That's St. Paul. Love this guy. They went strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. And then he says, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Now, this is important for us in our study of Galatia because now when Paul writes this letter years later, you know who he's writing to. He's writing to these elders of the leaders of these house churches in the cities of Antioch, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. He's writing to them to encourage them to remember what he taught them the first time, not the stuff that they were hearing, but the things that they had taught here in Acts chapter 14. Can we get it, everybody? Uh, So they began, uh, where would I leave off? Uh, Verse 24, after going through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. And when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. From Atalia, they sailed back to Antioch where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. Back where it all started again, in Antioch. 27, on arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them, and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Is that good news, huh? So, see, that's the background now for the book of Galatians. And uh, later, years after, just in a nutshell, right, after Paul goes on some of the other missionary journeys, while he's gone, some Judaizers, remember what we talked about Judaizers means? They're Jewish people who believe in Jesus, but they try and keep the Jewish rules and laws along with them. But they still believe and trust Jesus. So these Judaizers show up while Paul is gone and start planting seeds of doubt about the gospel. Start planting seeds of works righteousness, start undermining the free gift of grace that came in Christ Jesus. And you think St. Paul's going to let that go? Do you think he's just going to go, well, they're on their own? Not St. Paul. He fires off a letter. And this letter, just wait till we start digging into it. He is passionate. He is more passionate. He is more fired up in the book of Galatians than any other book, right? Uh, you're just going to hear, we'll get to it later, but man, he is pumped. Because they're undermining the gospel. All the good work that they started, St. Paul needs to correct them that they will get back to the truth and not to the lies that they've been hearing. Right? So now you know the background. Before I continue on, questions or thoughts? Anybody? Go ahead. Sure. Uh-huh. we should pass and pray more often. Yeah. But they also got together in too. So there was plenty of that. It sure is. Yep. Agreed. Yeah, for sure. Yes, sir. He asked, when did they get the power to heal? It, it really starts at Pentecost, at the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. So as soon as the Holy Spirit came, that's when God started to work through them to grow the church. And the healing, the miracles of speaking in tongues, you know, all of that sort of stuff began at Pentecost. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. Sure. And he still does today. God is still healing today through people, through prayers, through laying out of hands, through anointing of oil. God can still do those things. That's why we do two prayer and healing services every year here at Faith. You know, you can come up to the front and you can get hands laid on, you can get prayed for, you can get anointed with oil. We still believe that God works through these things. Yes. She asked, "What's the point of fasting?" So, uh, though in the general sense, the broad sense is it 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 helps you listen for God's will. So, it, it helps you focus, as you said. Yep, helps you just it just helps you um, remember. You know, so it's about the general sense. It's about just understanding, coming closer to God in the narrow sense. We fast often for a direction, you know, you'll fast and say, God, where are we to go? What are we to do? You know, you fast for a time uh, and you can ask a question of God, where are we? What should I do? Where should I go? Uh, and, you know, fasting isn't just not eating. That's the important thing to remember. We mix this up sometimes, and we think fasting is just not eating. It's what you do while you're fasting that's the power of fasting. So while you're fasting, you're reading the scriptures. While you're fasting, you're praying. While you're fasting, you're gathering with others in worship. So the whole thing is about understanding God's Holy Spirit leading and promptings. Other thoughts or questions? before we move on yes I remember when we had that, had Yeah. God certainly works through those things. There's no doubt about it. Hmm. Yeah. Others? Yes. emotions become bigger and i add i always say i add rather than take away Mm. and i've done that for years i've always felt like i'm giving more than by sitting hungry Mm -hmm. and thinking when am i going to eat so um i just and i look forward to that i just love lent and advent and the times when i want to add on rather than take away so it's just an idea so if you could all hear what she was saying, it's, she's, she uses Lent and Advent as times of fasting. But the fasting isn't just taking things away like not eating chocolate or, you know, not drinking coffee, heaven forbid, you know. Um, but it's a time also to add on things. And see, that's my point. Fasting isn't just not, not eating. It's what you do while you're fasting when you give up something. You know, adding on more worship, adding on more Bible study, adding on more prayer. So every time you get a, a, a stomach growl, it's supposed to be a reminder. Oh, yeah, I'm supposed to be praying more. And so you pray. Every time you see someone else munching on a candy bar and you go, shucks, I can't have that. Right. Then you think to yourself, "Ah, this is a reason right now for me to stop and give thanks to God for something. That's the point of fasting. It's really adding on. It's not taking away. The taking away helps us add on. That's the point. And also a nice point I like that you made is that for Lutherans, that's what Lent was always about. Lent was a time to fast, the giving up of something uh, or in adding something, right? That was what Lent was always about. We've kind of, these later years, it's kind of lost its luster. Lent has lost its appeal to people. Uh, certainly has lost its purpose. Uh, it's to sit in sack and ash cloth, uh, ash cloth, ashes, sackcloth and ashes, right? Uh, and to just remember that we are dust and to dust we will return and to fast through those 40 days uh, to grow closer to the Lord and understand his will better. So that's the purpose of Lent and Advent, but it's kind of changed or lost its luster a little bit, I think. All right, other thoughts? Good stuff, everybody. Well, good. Let's turn to the introduction to Galatians, then. So as I mentioned, I'm just going to kind of read through a paragraph, and then we'll talk and discuss about it. Just want to have some casual fun in this thing together. All right? So introduction to Galatians. Uh, The heading here I wrote is introduction, but really it's like a warning. A happy warning to let you know, as we begin Galatians, we are in for an exciting experience. To me, it's like something, someone's squealing out, watch out, just as the roller coaster grinds to the top of the track and the plunge is about to begin. I think the roller coaster analogy is an apt one for the book of Galatians. For in this brief letter, we are going to be pulled and plummeted from one extreme to another. We're going to hear St. Paul move from anger, rage, and even fury to uh, uh, compassion and gentle care. See, it's funny, the range of emotions in Galatians, like it's a roller coaster. One minute he's just ranting and raving in anger, and the next moment he's loving and reaching out with compassion and care. We're going to move from the breathtaking righteous anger of a protective mother to the sternness and soberness of a father, setting the offspring offspring straight and pointing them like a wise old teacher in the right direction. This is the book of Galatians. Uh, in our house, it's kind of the opposite. Like, if my daughters want something, they know to come and ask me, right? Because they call me the cushion. See, does you think that's right? They call my wife the rock, and they call me the cushion. <laughs> Right. Right. But I'm, I'm using the analogy here of a stern father and, and the mother, not because it works at my house, but just because it's one that we all understand. Right. Uh, and we're going to see both of those extremes here in the book of Galatians uh, as Paul works with the folks there. So it's a happy experience, the book of uh, Galatians, if you're one of the good guys, because you're going to get a lot of love and a lot of TLC from St. Paul. The good guys are what he calls the little children that he mentions in 419. However, the book of Galatians is not such a happy experience if you're one of the bad guys. And you'll be able to recognize them uh, by the excess of upset which Paul just pours out on them. When all is said and done, what lies before us is a trip through one of the most outstanding lessons in Christian truth and one of the deepest excursions into Christian doctrine in all of literature. Only, don't expect a lecture. The book of Galatians. Romans, if you've ever read that, is like a lecture. Galatians is not a lecture. Uh, This is more like dad at his best behind the woodshed. You'll get the point before the time is over. And even if that experience is reminiscent of a tornado passing through, you'll be ever so grateful for having gone to school with this volatile apostle. See, I've been in the woodshed. (laughs) Trust me. And I didn't like it when I was there. But I look back now and I go, you know what? I learned a lot in the woodshed. And I've been pulling out those things that dad and mom used to say all the time with my kids and my girls, right? And I'm thinking that's what it's going to be like in Galatians. It's going to be like we're getting taken to the woodshed. But in that woodshed, we're going to learn a lot about God and ourselves. Uh, There'll be lessons, life lessons, that we take from this and hopefully will pass on from generation to generation. All right? See, uh, are you getting excited about Galatians? I hope. So the circumstances in Galatia, we've talked about those, uh, what happened originally, and how things had changed. Now, the circumstances there had Paul—this is my picture— Flinging things off the desk, trying to find a pen and a papyrus so he can dash off a letter to the folks in the churches to set both hearts and records straight. Somebody came and told Paul what was going on there. Somebody came and, and said, you're not going to believe what's going on in the churches in Galatia. And they shared this stuff and how they were turning away from the gospel, how they were turning to false teachers, and how these false teachers were bad-mouthing St. Paul and his teaching, and his authority, and his apostleship. And it just riles him so much. I just get this picture that he's looking all over. Give me a pen. Give me some paper. i got to write some stuff down. i got to set them straight. See, you know Paul, as I wrote this next sentence, was never one to just sleep on it. I'm pretty sure those words never came out of his mouth. Uh, What we have here is as much heart and heat as it is mind. In Paul's case, the content, structure, and style don't suffer in the least. What a masterpiece tumbles out onto the page through his pen. No wonder the letters were so large. See, I don't think this is coincidental. In Galatians 6, verse 11, he says, See with what large letters I write this. Do you know how when we're typing today, we'll bold a text? Or we'll make it larger font? You know, they didn't have that in those days, so you know what they did? They wrote larger letters, right? See, Paul is ticked. Paul is passionate. Paul is just fired up. And in his writing of this letter, he says, look at what large letters I write these things. In other words, pay attention, people. This stuff is important. As I wrote, who's concerned with penmanship when there's so much which needs to be said and so much which needs to be said so emphatically? For you see, after all the elementary, the basic, the fundamental doctrine that Paul had provided, simple and uncluttered, when he made his sweep through the province and gotten those little home churches underway, right? Some know-it-alls from Jerusalem arrived upon the scene to insinuate that a little improvement upon Paul's teachings needed to be made. Here's what I imagine that they said. All right, let's set the scene. Paul is gone. The church has been around existing these home churches for a while in the cities of Iconium, Leicester, Derby, Antioch, right? And these folks come along years afterwards, and they see people rejoicing in the free gift of the gospel. And they see people that don't celebrate the old, or don't care for the Old Testament law. They see people who aren't being circumcised. They see people who aren't obeying the feasts and the ceremonial food laws. They're eating bacon sandwiches, right? They see these things going on, right? That They've abandoned the Old Testament law, and they're living in the freedom of the gospel. And here's what I imagine they say. Hey, y'all. Paul says, Paul says that our eternal future is assured because it was won for us by Jesus. You need not, says Paul, and you cannot, says Paul, do anything to contribute to eternal hope in life. You know, he's partly right. This is what I hear him saying. He's basically right. There's an element of truth in that. Yet, it does play fast and loose with some of the, rav- with the rather obvious factors. Take circumcision, for example. You know that's in the Bible, don't you? Or consider the observation of special days and holy years and sacrifice times and food that you're supposed to eat and clothes that you're supposed to wear and things that you're supposed to do on the Sabbath, on and on and on. You know these things are in the Bible, right? So you can't say that it's all bad. If you can be a good Christian without these things, you could certainly be a better Christian with them. Can't you just hear? Can't you just see them twisting the truth of the freedom of the gospel that we're saved by grace, not by works? Can you just hear him twisting and saying, we're not saying we're not saved by grace, but, and anytime there's a but, you're in trouble. Don't see, look, but don't be too hard on your friend, Paul. After all, you know, he's not normally trained in a properly certified clergyman like all the others. You know, you might reasonably expect that his points of view would call for just a little bit of refining. <laughs> right? Can you hear it? This is what they're saying, things like this. And look, look at the next paragraph. Oh, those lovable oafs there in Galatia, we're falling for it. So St. Paul responds, Good grief! Tell the postman I'll be down in a minute. Don't let him leave without this. I've got to get this in the mail for Galatia tonight. Nobody's going to pull the legalistic wool over the eyes of my beloved. Take a letter. Get out a pen and parchment mark and put this down. So what does he write? Six chapters. What does he write? Basically three things. He says, one, the Judaizers are right about this. I'm not an apostle like all the other apostles. In fact, my credentials are better, he says. And we're going to hear, this is not bragging. This is Paul stating the truth so that, they will not, so that he would be able to defend his authority and his apostleship. My credentials are better, as a matter of fact, than anyone else's. It was a personal defense of his, but with a purpose. There was no legitimate basis to undermine his ministry. You're going to hear St. Paul say something that I love to say. It's not me talking, but it's God talking. If you don't agree with what I'm saying, don't take it up with me. Talk to the man. That's St. Paul's defense here. Second, he's going to defend the gospel. The heart and soul of the true gospel is the freedom it provides from any kind of contribution like any kind of enslaving worry about inadequate contributions or anything like that, right? That you need to add nothing to the gospel because Jesus did it all on the cross. Have we not talked about this over and over again, right? Did Jesus die for most of your sins? For almost all of your sins? Did Jesus complete most of the work you need for salvation? No, he completed all of it. He died for all of your sins. There's not a single thing you need to add to that. In fact, if you do, if you believe that you need to do something first before you can be saved, what you're saying is that what Jesus did on the cross wasn't good enough. Hmm? Right? Not good enough. See, so he's going to defend this. Don't tell me you need to do something. Keep the law. Eat certain foods. Obey certain laws. Don't tell me that. Uh, God and God only is the active agent of our salvation. And even in and of our Christian lives, that's the doctrine he's going to preach and teach again. And three, all of this has practical implications and produces specific results in your life and mine. There it is. One, two, three. We're going to see in a minute when we do our outline that there is a personal section of Galatians, there's a doctrinal section of Galatians, and there's a practical section of Galatians. And each section handily covers two chapters, and that will be our outline. And we'll unpack that in a little bit. So already early on in Paul's ministry, remember we said this is one of the earliest letters? He has already got this mind where when he preaches, he hands out an outline. (laughs) know what I'm saying? Right? When he preaches, there's an outline, and he's got structure. This is the way St. Paul writes. It's the way he teaches. It's the way he preaches. This is why we well, Westerners love St. Paul. The Eastern Church doesn't dig St. Paul as much as we do. Right? They're a lot more into Hebrews. <laughs> that crazy book of that circular thing. Uh, but anyway, he's he's great for us linear thinkers. All right, so... Uh, I'm just going to stop here for a second and just pause for questions or comments before I just close with this last section here. Anybody? You getting excited for Galatians? Should be fun. All right, reading now. It isn't only Paul who's furious about these Judaizers from Jerusalem fouling the Christian nest, and it isn't simply these folks in Galatia who are naively turned to another gospel, which is no gospel, but a people-centered, work-oriented, humanistic substitute for the gospel. Let's not forget, everybody, that the Bible, that includes six chapters of Galatians, is also the Word of God. And what do we always say about the Word of God? It's not a dead historical writing. It's not a study of things that have happened in the past. It is that, but it is also a living word, which is for us today, right? The Word of God, that's the beauty of the Word of God. So, have you ever just thought about this? How is it possible that something that was written 2,000 years ago is still useful today? How is that possible? And not just today today but the thousands of years and the thousands of people before us. How is it that this word has continually been able to connect with people, no matter where they live, no matter what was going on in their world, no matter how old or young they were, no matter what color their skin is, no matter what's going on in their lives, how is it possible that this word is still so powerfully real, helpful, and relevant? How? Because it's God's word. This living word that God gave once for all time, for all people. That's cool, isn't it, everybody? Right? So as Paul's speaking to the Galatians, God is speaking to whom? Yeah, you and me. This is what we love about the word. As as the author addresses a situation in time, God addresses all situations for all time. How cool is that? Right, so every last word in this remarkable book is even more a product of the Holy Spirit than it is of Paul. The Spirit of God also is upset then with another different gospel. That's a important sentence. As Paul is ranting and raving and angry and upset of those who are compromising the gospel, if it's the Holy Spirit that's inspiring, that's speaking through him, who also is angry. About the Holy, uh, the Gospel being compromised. Who? God the Holy Spirit. Even God the Holy Spirit is upset when the Gospel is compromised. When we think we need to add our own to what Christ Jesus has fully completed. All right, get it? So this paragraph, and we too then are in the picture, specifically the influences all around us and among us today, which would have us expand a little on just the simple, some would say childish gospel, inviting us to get our fingers into the pie. These are the folks who are the real target of the book. And we too are getting sidetracked from the pure gospel daily. You'll see as we proceed, this book we are studying is as current and relevant as can be. Here the Holy Spirit talks to us about our day's subtle temptations to abandon the unique gospel of grace for the same old weary religion of works which wants to give a yank now and again to our bootstraps to bring us safely home. Don't you see? We're still doing it today. We're still trying to just take a little bit of credit. Here's a book which sets us free of those temptations and the constraints and frustrations and downright terror, which is so much the mark of every faith which makes demands upon man's efforts at the price, at least in part, for his salvation. So this book declares our independence from all of that. Did you know the book of Galatians is some call, sometimes called our De- Declaration of Christian Independence? Yeah, just kind of a nickname for the gospel of Galatians. We declare our independence from what? Our independence on the law our independence on our own righteousness. We declare independence from that and our complete dependence on Christ Jesus, which is going to show up here in a second in our outline. All right, so that's just an introduction to the book and where we're going to go and what I'm hoping God will do through us as we study it together. All good, everybody? All right, last section then is to fill out this little outline. I've got some blanks for you there. Right, and we're going to kind of work through these blanks together. So we already said there are three sections here, right? in in this In this book, uh, we said there was first there was a personal section. Do you remember that? So you can write that in that first little blank the, on the left. Three sections. The first section is a personal section of Saint Paul as he talks about his his own defends his own authority and his apostleship. The second, then, there's a doctrinal section no don't put that in the bottom that's to the right so yep you see the first one on the three under the three sections the first one on the left you're going to have personal in the middle you're going to put doctrinal there's a doctrinal section and then the one all the way to the right right on that one you're going to put his um, application or practical so these are the three sections right and it's interesting Um, That each of the three sections is two chapters. So underneath the personal one, you see there's two blanks underneath that. You can write chapter one and two. In the middle one, which is the doctrinal section, you can write chapters three and four. And under the application, you can write chapters five and six. You following my logic here as we kind of, or St. Paul's logic as he breaks this all up, right? And then we're going to see in each chapter how it fits in the theme. So now we're on that first theme. You see the two blanks on the left. Chapter 1, under that, under where you also have one, you can write the word authority. So the theme there is going to be what's Paul's authority? Who says he gets to talk? Who says that he's right and the other false teachers are wrong? Next to that, you can write under chapter 2, he's going to talk about apostles. What does it mean to be an apostle? And if you're an apostle, what does it mean about what you preach and teach? So you see, all this is under Paul's personal section. Then under the the doctrinal section, under chapter 3, he's going to say that we are saved by, and you can write this, faith, not works. So under the 3, chapter 3 is about faith, not works. That's how we're saved. And because of that, Under chapter 4 in the doctrinal section, you can write this. We are sons, not slaves. We're sons and daughters, not slaves, because we've been set free. We're not slaves to the law. So that's the doctrinal section. All right. Then the application section, right? Under chapter 4, you can write the word freedom, Excuse me, five. Yep, yeah, my bad. Five. Under chapter five, you can write freedom, not license. And Paul's going to say, because we have been set free, we are free of the law. That doesn't give us license to do whatever we want. Right? So he's going to talk about this is the application. Now that you've been set free, what does this mean? How do you live? Well, we have freedom, not license. And under chapter six, he's going to share the results. That's the word you can write. The results, what happens when we live in the freedom of the gospel, how does God work that? All right? Now, then, underneath all of that, then, there are these three last blanks that you have. Right? So, under the first section, chapters 1 and 2, Paul's personal section, he's going to, this theme is going to just bubble up over and over again. Two things. Not dependent on people. And the opposite of that, we are dependent on Christ. So as Paul talks about his authority, and as Paul talks about his apostleship, it's going to be very clear that that is not dependent on himself. He shares the story that the Damascus wrote, who he was before Damascus. It's not dependent on him, but it is his authority and his apostleship dependent on Christ. See, this theme is going to be in these two chapters. Then the middle section, the, the doctrinal side, again, we're going to get a not, and it is. No, number one, salvation is not dependent on works. Right? Very clear that salvation is not depending on what we do. But then the opposite of that, salvation is dependent on grace. Again, that bubbles through those two middle chapters, chapters 3 and 4. And then finally, the last section, the application section, right? Uh, You're going to get two things again, an is, a not, and an is. Number one, Christians are not dependent on the law. We don't live according to the law. We've been set free from the law. But Christians are dependent on the Holy Spirit we are depending on the holy spirit not the law so now as you look at your little outline there you might want to just keep that as we're moving through galatians together in these weeks ahead you know plugging into those pieces those chapters as we as we see paul's strategy in laying out the good news of the gospel what do you think everybody good going to make sense going to dig in we will All right. Well, blessings, everyone. Thanks for the introduction of Galatians start and look forward to what God's going to do through it. You're welcome. See you all again.